for August 5th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 266. 300 Brides for 300 Spartans. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel to talk about no movie. No what? summer movie. <laughs> right. Cue sound effects. I, I, I feel like one of the marks of success of our podcast, uh, aside from our nearly five-year history, our consistent uh, production and publication of the shows, is that we don't have one of those soundboard things that you hear on a lot of on a lot of sort of do it yourself podcasts where bye 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 so so warm my name is Detective John Kimball. <laughs> that's like a deep soundboard joke from yeah. like 2002 uh, wow that's like a that's almost as far back as the jerky boys <laughs> Remember them? Uh, yeah, so uh, we have to do all of our, our sound effects the old-fashioned way by ourselves. Um, but no, there's no film that we were excited about talking about this week. And so we're going to do a, a non-movie summer p- podcast, which I'm, uh, I'm sort of excited about because it does – it's, uh, you know, uh, it's wonderful to do the show. It's always a great, uh, a great pleasure to talk with, with uh, you folks and to, um, you know, uh, put the show out for the audience. But it does – doesn't it kind of feel like a bit of a grind sometimes in the summer where it's just like, well, whatever the big thing they're putting out in the theaters is, that's, that's what we have to talk about. And so we yeah, can – when you're reclining at a 45 degree angle, forced to watch RAPD, yeah, sometimes it feels like a grind. <laughs> we we uh, took that challenge though. We stepped up to the plate with RAPD, <laughs> and we made. I, just, I really I love that podcast. I listened to that podcast again while doing the dishes the other night, and I love it. Thank you guys. It was great. So yeah, for for seeing RAPD. <laughs> So that we can, or separately from me, in our own solitary and empty theaters. This so got that we- <laughs> this got hung on you, and this is a phenomenon that happens among friends, where like something that is in fact a complex, multi-determined, intrasubjective, or sorry, intersubjective uh, group phenomenon, like uh, our decision to see RIPD, gets kind of hung around the neck of one person. Like at, Fenzel is making us all see RIPD. Um, I, I mention it because I once got a movie hung around me when when a bunch of a uh, bunch of friends and I went out to see the uh, the film adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> oh wow, the Gerard Butler one. Huh? Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum and and so on. Yeah, that, that got. Uh, that got hung around my neck, and and for months later, the, they were bringing it up and making fun of me. Um, but hey, no, uh, no movie, no movie this week, and it's interesting. Uh, the reason why this weekend was the weekend that uh, three hundred two, which in fact is not called three hundred two, but we're going to go on and call it uh, three hundred two. Uh, on this podcast, uh, 302 or 3002, I guess, which would be 3002. Um, 3002 was supposed to come out this weekend and it got pushed back. So, in honor of our uh, movie list podcast panel, uh, your question this week a movie question. Why did 302 or 300 Rise of an Empire, uh, as it's known uh, vulgarly um, in the Vulgate? Uh, the uh, why, why did this film get pushed back? Uh, we're honored tonight because we have with us an infrequent guest, Matt Belinke. Uh Hey, guys. It's good to, good to be here. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't see R.I.P.D. You guys made it sound so, so exciting. Uh, I don't know how I missed that one. Um, so here's the deal. My understanding of how they did 301, and this is not, of course, by 301. I don't mean 301, but I mean it's 300. <laughs> I can tell this is going to be a who's on first style uh, opening question. Um, was that a lot of the aspects of movie making that traditionally you would do uh, before you shot the movie, such as designing sets and uh, you know the, the uh, choreographing whole battles and everything, that stuff could be done afterwards. You shot the entire movie in front of a green screen, and then you basically figured out afterwards 
words, what it was going to look like. It's a little more complicated than that. I, my theory is that for 302, as we are going to exist on Kalyan, they went one step further, and they, they didn't even know exactly what the story was, but they knew who they wanted in it. And they got them in front of the camera and basically had them – you guys remember the, the famous uh, Gerald Ford Saturday Night Live sketch? Um, where, <laughs> Gerald where Dan, Ford was eaten yeah, by wolves. Yeah, exactly. David Carvey has played Tom Brokaw, and the idea is that he's going on vacation, and before he will be allowed to go on vacation, he has to record all the news stories that could potentially happen while he is gone, which leads <laughs> to him uh, recording various versions of, of Gerald Ford today, sensing by wolves. He was delicious. To which he asked the producers if he really has to say, uh, ask of the uh, specify that Ford was delicious, and the producers like, he's the president of the United States. Are you going to say he wasn't delicious? <laughs> so what I'm thinking about the way 302 was, is they, they literally just had people improvise lines that you could imagine them saying in a 300 type movie um such as like instead of uh, this is sparta insert the name of other cities starting with the greek cities but then you're not really sure where you're gonna go so this is rome this is paris this is this is new york um so you just try various versions and then like afterwards no it takes place so far in the past it's it's not new york it's just york yes this is this is this is memphis all right now do one for the egyptian city this is memphis <laughs> so, so I'm thinking like 302 is basically one of those pieces of uh, like refrigerator poetry where you have like various sort of snippets of dialogue and you have to just, <laughs> just assemble your own. And that's why it's taking a longer time than they, than they thought because they got a bunch of random clips of people saying this is insert city here. They need to figure out which, which, uh, which city sort of looks the best in sepia tone inserted over their shoulder while they say it. I have trouble with those refrigerator things because I always get like a perfect villanelle except for one word, you know, and it just yeah. it sits there and it just it kills me that I need that one word. Now, villanelle is probably too long. A perfect limerick, let's say. Harder to compose sometimes than a villanelle. Uh, That's but you- where you got to do your 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 uh, downloadable content. You guys haven't heard about my Surefire, uh, and I'm sure somebody's made it uh, app idea where it would just be like an app that does uh, refrigerator poetry. But the great thing is like, this bye bye bye. <laughs> you would literally charge people for like ten words. It would be like five dollars would just get you ten random words that you would then be allowed to use in your poetry, and people would <laughs> people would buy it. I'm absolutely convinced about this. They're like, oh, the word squishy. I'd pay for that. <laughs> um, well, you know, you know who knows a thing or two about composing villanelles. It's our friend mm-hmm. Pete Fenzel. <laughs> rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's not no, even a joke, right? That's like literally a true thing about no. Peter Fenzel. Yeah, this is true. No, did I, have I told the villanelle story on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the villanelle story is um, is I was tortured in college at one point with a project of having to write a villanelle. Uh, villanelle uh, is a is a it's a dense uh, formal verse form, right? Where you have to have these two rhyming lines that uh, one of them has to be at the beginning of each of these three line stanzas, and it ends with a couplet of these two things. And there's a interlocking rhyme pattern. And it's very formal. It's like very much sort of a blueprint kind of thing. It's very tough to do well um, because you know you sort of are writing. You're kind of riding the uh, the wake of your boat here. You're sort of like, you, you're, you have a lot of restriction put on you by the structure. So I was agonizing in college over writing a villanelle when my friend Raph, who was also, I ran a Tough Mudder with this past Saturday, was sitting in game theory class with me. Matt, you took this game theory class as well, with the illustrious uh, Tazos Calendrock. And the spike equilibrium. Yeah, that's where the spike equilibrium comes from. It's the same uh, same uh, game theory class. And he literally like wrote this villanelle called Upon the Sight of Beef Stew, uh, where the two lines were, Upon the Sight of Beef Stew, I hope to God, this was only the flu, which was about like a little kid who uh, was being served a meal in the hospital and was dying. Um, and he did it in like 15 minutes, and it inf- infuriated me. Uh, and so I went home that night and I wrote the villain. I was very motivated. So, um, but anyway, uh, villainels aside, uh, so yeah, upon the side of beef stew is a very loaded sense for me. But yes, anyway, so the reason that 302 did not come out this year, uh, so we have talked a couple times on the podcast about the uncanny ability of movies to predict horrible tragedies. 
right? So the, like like uh, like American Gangsters or whatever it was called had to be pushed back, right? Because the it predicted it didn't predict it had a shooting in a movie theater, which kind of predicted the events of Aurora. It didn't really predict them. Happened after the fact. But I'm going to stick with the, the idea that it was it was psychic in some way. And we talked about how RIPD was sort of uh, you know involved Boston and had a lot of dead people and marathon bombings. It was pretty awkward. Uh, you know, Spider Man and the World Trade Center. You know, they had to do some changing the effects after the fact. So I'm going to say that 302 got pushed back because through a horrendous uh, coincidence, a heavy it heavily, heavily features Alex Rodriguez being suspended for steroid use. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, thought, I, thought, I thought you were going to say like a, a military coup in Egypt. No, 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 no. It's coming out this weekend. It was, <laughs> okay. it was last weekend, then it would have been the military coup in Egypt or two weekends ago. But by the time you listen to this podcast, Alex Rodriguez... God willing and the crick don't rise, will have been suspended for steroid abuse. How's that for the future perfect test? <laughs> nice. Uh, so, uh, and 300 knew that if it came out right before Alex Rodriguez was suspended for steroid abuse, that entire section of King Leonidas suspending Alex Rodriguez for steroid abuse would seem, they would seem to, it would reflect poorly on Major League Baseball. It would be seem really poor taste. People would be really offended. So they decided to push it back to 2014, which will be the year during which Alex Rodriguez will be suspended from baseball for steroid use, uh, such that at that point it will seem timely, but not uh, predictive, yeah. you know, not sort of in the loop. Which Oh, and Alex Rodriguez, it's not the same guy. It's just a guy with the same name. Oh, it's, I was going to ask. Yeah, no, no, it's a total coincidence. Okay. He's actually from Thrace, uh, and it's actually Alex Rod, and then it's Riguez. Uh, G E S. Uh, that's that's Greek, sort of Macedonian, maybe. I'm not sure, but yeah, but no, he totally chokes at the Battle of Thermopylae. It's really unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, thro- he throws his sword to the ground in frustration and stalks off while people are yelling, No, the battle's still going on. Ah, ah. Oh man, yeah, they, they sign him to a 2,000 year 500 marble temple uh, contract extension. <laughs> Like, 300 actually represents the batting average that he will never again come close to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mark Lee. Okay, before I give my answer, I should note that we are speculating about the reasons why 300, too, has been postponed, not just because we're ill-informed and are just speculating wildly for the hell of it. Um, We are speculating wildly for the hell of it because the reasons why this movie on postponed aren't really totally clear. Um, let's see here. Uh, I believe uh, Zack Snyder uh, has said that uh, the reason for the postponement officially is to uh, finish the spe- special effects, which sure that may be plausible, but you know, studios give all sorts of reasons for postponing movies. They, they don't test well. Um, you know, they predicted uh, a rod's uh, steroid suspension, all sorts of reasons. Right. <laughs> so we don't really know why. And, you know, you can, maybe you can Google and find a, a better reason or more official reason why uh, or more possible reason why the movie has been uh, postponed. You can put that in the comments. Um, so that's why we're wildly speculating. So here's my idea. Um, this movie was announced in, it was announced in May that this movie that was supposed to come out in August of 2013 is going to come out in March, 2014 instead. I think that there is some number cruncher at Warner brothers who's doing like saber metrics uh, for movies who decided that uh, the slate of movies uh, and the types of movies coming out and the nature of them, the budgets and this sort of thing um, uh, for this summer was such that 300 was not going to be poised well uh, at the box office to make a lot of money. People have been talking a lot about uh, box office or super uh, blockbuster fatigue. The idea that there's sort of too many tentpole movies coming out and uh, moviegoers are tired of the big special effects action movies. I think there's a little bit of credence to this. I think we need to go back and look at that a little more and, and you know, see what the type of movies actually coming out are and how well they have done. Um, but uh, for now, I'm going to work with this theory that somebody ran the numbers in May, didn't look at like how things were looking, white, and then put it back house, to, to March. White House down in 300 couldn't exist in the same marketplace? Something like that, yeah. This is actually how the Romans fought Hannibal. Uh, for the first <laughs> in the in the initial part of their uh, in the campaign in Italy, right before the Cunctator was relieved of his command by the Senate, right he, he just refused to give open battle to Hannibal and ev- evaded him in the Italian peninsula. Yeah. You know, yeah. I thought you were going to say that the Romans had a sabermetrician on staff. Well, no, they, I was, they, they practiced sabermetrics with actual sabers. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually just talking about the Vin Diesel project, Hannibal, uh, Hannibal the Conqueror. Oh, that's right. They were going to yeah. do that. He actually the thing is Vin Diesel. I don't know. 
if you guys uh, follow like Vin Diesel on Facebook, but Vin Diesel on Facebook is awesome. Uh, Vin Diesel is con- constantly changes his cover picture to various things uh, on Facebook, and there's a lot of them of like him with elephants and like keeping the dream alive. Like he seems really personally invested in the idea of Hannibal the Conqueror eventually happening. And I mean, this is a time in which Vin Diesel is like can thank his freaking lucky stars for all sorts of things that he thought were dead was dead, like coming back, you know, like Fast and the Furious and Riddick, you know, and all this other stuff. Yeah, but, it's gonna uh, be ten, pretty much ten years since the Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> Good lord, has it really been that? See that Buzzfeed, get on that Buzzfeed. Like that makes me feel old. Is that as we've lived in a post Riddick world for ten years? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, Louise. But yeah, twenty five you know, surprising things that were true before the Chronicles of Riddick, before Pitch Black. <laughs> Yeah, twenty. Yeah, fifty things in the Chronicles of Riddick that will make you that will remind you that the Chronicles of Riddick was ten years ago and kind of not all that great. Thirty Oscar-winning <laughs> actors who've died since Chronicles of Riddick came out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, and are now guys. We should we should just convert overthinking it to straight listicles, right? Oh yeah, listicles you'd, and cat pictures you'd make totally. more money. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Hey guys, we should totally cook meth instead of do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's a TV show coming out next weekend that's going to tell us how to do that. It's pretty great. Here it works out. Yeah, here it works out well for that guy. Yeah, no, totally. It's all it's all sunshine and roses. It's like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Total happy ending. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, next in the alphabet, John Parrish. What up, what up, what up? So mine's actually pretty straightforward and a little bit a little bit inside baseball. But, you know, 302, you know, the, the movie title when printed looks like 3002, which the producers realized a little late was going to confuse people who were anticipating the release of 3032, a.k.a. Deltron, 3000, uh, Deltron 3030's <laughs> second album, Deltron Event 2, which after about a 10-year hiatus is finally going to be released this summer, I think. Uh, I'm still not sure. He keeps keeps promising it. (laughs) Is it like Del the Funky Homo Sapiens MacBook is like frozen while he's trying to like get the tracks rendered or something? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I mean, it keeps freezing and he's got it loaded on the zip drive. So he's been trying to backload those and it's it's just ridiculous. But anyhow, that is apparently after... I think at least three years since Dell told newspapers that it was finally finished done or, or finally finished and ready in production. It is now ready and in production. It's going to be released any day now. So, of course, jokes on the producers of uh, 302, a.k.a. 3002, in that the album's probably still not coming out anytime soon. But they decided to push it back a few months just to just to be safe because they're all real big Danny Automator fans and they wouldn't have been any good in the in the press release junkets or the PR junkets if, you know, if this album was, was coming out and they had to hear it. Can you explain so, like Deltron 3030 to people who may not be familiar with it, who are listening, which I assume is only a small minority of our podcast listeners. <laughs> I know. It's so, familiar with Deltron, Del- 3030. Deltron 3030 is very meaningful to me personally, because it was sort of my introduction to hip hop, which for those of you who know it is a really weird way to come into hip hop <laughs> in, in any sense. It's, it's kind of like discovering reading through James Joyce. But, uh, so yeah, Deltron 3030 is a concept album put out by the rapper Del the Funky Homo Sapien, who most listeners probably know as the guy who raps over uh, the Gorillaz song Clint Eastwood. He's the guy who's like, finally, someone let me out of my cage, and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's him. That's Del the Funky Homo Sapien. In, in May of 2000, he put out a concept album called Deltron 3030, which is about a guy named Deltron Zero, who pilots giant battle mechs powered by sorcery to defeat the evil corporations that rule the universe. <laughs> uh, so all of the tracks are sort of based around that concept. And he, and he defeats these corporations by participating in intergalactic rap battles as well, which are also phenomenal. It's produced by Dan the Automator Nakamura. It's loaded with, you know, anime and sci-fi and comic book references. And it's a really good rap album as well. So I recommend that everybody listening to the podcast check it out. So this is back in May of 2000, and he's been he's been touting the follow-up album, which is Deltron Event Two, since about 2004. So this is this is a long time in the making, and obviously you can understand that if word got out that this was finally going to be released, that the producers of any pop culture prop, even remotely similar in name, would back the f off. Yeah, that's why they actually uh, canceled the uh, taking Dell computer private, right? 
It wasn't that the board of directors wanted to sell out the hedge fund. Exactly. We're going to end up accidentally yeah. buying the Dell, the Deltron uh, Event Two album instead of <laughs> laptop companies. So we should be careful and wait for it to be gone first. Yeah, you got to be you got to be careful what you purchase on Amazon because everything's everything's very similarly named. Like <laughs> Dell Corporation, Deltron Event Two. Like which one was it again? <laughs> I have some I have some crucial and highly relevant information to add to this. I I was searching IMDb to see if there is in fact a movie that has been made called uh, 3002 and there's not, but there is a movie called 3001 A Penis Odyssey. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw that out there and I'm going to quote the actual tagline off of IMDb. A thousand years from now, a penis long dormant under the lunar surface will wake. And I got to say I'm curious to watch it. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with the reason 3,300 and whatever it is was delayed, but I will, I'll will i be reporting back to you on that pretty that soon. That sounds like more of a Dr. Octagon situation than a Deltron situation. <laughs> so, I, I, uh, to, uh, I'll wrap it up. This is, this is one of those. This is... Um, this is great. Uh, I don't know. It feels like this this week on Overthinking It has felt like the old Overthinking It is back, right? Like when when uh, I don't know when uh, we were, I guess, publishing more and uh, and uh, the the think tank, which was fun to write and fun to get in there in the comments and and um, hash out this stuff and uh, and this podcast with the the question of the week that takes up half the length of the podcast. Which we've gotten pretty good about not doing anymore, but um, but uh, you know this week I don't know we're going back to our old ways. I like that. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm enjoying this. So so here's my answer. I think that uh, they realized that uh, an action franchise in this the summer of the flop, the summer of the action franchise uh, flop. Uh, you know, uh, wasn't that an action franchise wasn't the way to go, and that they're going to actually retool the movie, do a lot of, of punch ups and reshoots and, and script rewrites, um, and reimagine the movie along the lines of My Big Fat Greek, Greek Wedding. And so it's going to be, uh, you know, 302, uh, and all the characters from all the characters, the actors from My Big Fat Greek Wedding are going to be interspersed among them, which they can do with CGI because the whole damn movie is going to be, uh, is going to be CGI anyway, um, as the ancestors of the characters in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And they're going to, uh, they're going to like, um, in a, you know, I don't know, in a, in a way kind of like Arrested Development did with the fourth season, um, they're going to uh, put it all together so that, like, when you watch them in sequence, there are just incredible continuities uh, of story. And that, uh, so that 302 is not the second movie in the franchise. It will, in fact, be the middle movie in a trilogy that encompasses <laughs> 300 uh, and also My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which is which 300 we can... brides for 300 Spartans. This <laughs> <laughs> is like my, my, my like chiseled eight pack Greek wedding, is what this is. That one is the big fat one. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, that's good. Is it? I mean, is it the summer of the flop? I don't know. We we enjoyed R.I.P.D. Yeah, that movie totally rocked <laughs> <laughs> for us and about like you know fifteen other people. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Here's, here's the thing that always gets me when there's these articles about how like, oh no, their their foolproof strategy failed. Is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about the fact that perhaps. People didn't go to see R.I.P.D. because it was not very good, because it didn't look good in the, the trailers, the poster, the reviews. And that explains why it didn't make money. And it wasn't that like people don't want to see big budget action extravaganzas um, that like if you look at the movies that have done well this summer and the movies that have not done well, it's like maybe the reason that people didn't want to go see like White House Down and and um, what is it, Olympus Has Fallen is not because they're like, you know, burnt out on like, you know, people taking over the White House movies. It's because neither of them really was that that great. 
I mean, yeah, the, the counterpoint, though, is that when we're talking about the summer of flops, we're not really talking about R.A.P.D. because a bomb is a bomb is a bomb, and that movie just bombed. But, uh, but we're talking more about, like, the sort of Pacific Rims, right, where it's like the movie did fine, and the movie definitely made its forecast, but the movie costs, like, $200 million, right? And so you need to make a lot of money to make back the money that you spent to make Pacific Rim, and it, it hasn't quite stepped up. You mean, the people are, they're really swinging for, offenses for, and the, for the fences with a lot of these movies. I know the Smurfs just this past weekend, Smurfs 2, right, uh, didn't do very well either, right? Like, kind of, I don't know if it bombed necessarily, but really underperformed. And I mean, I look at these numbers, and it's like, oh, it got like a, you know, Pacific Rim had like a $38 million opening weekend, which is like, yeah, that's not fast, and, that's not like a Fast and Furious numbers, right? But that's like, uh, that's like, you know, not nothing. You know, that's not like super duper terrible. It's only super duper terrible. It's, <laughs> it's not, so expensive. It's not a Fast and Furious <laughs> number. It's a, it's a kind of moderately paced and slightly peeved number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Th- those are, those are torque numbers at best. Yeah, <laughs> torque numbers at best. <laughs> wow. What? I remember that. <laughs> and the situation is that like, an ex- I mean, we've talked about this, Matt, you and I, I know in particular, uh, the idea of, of an expensive movie is a risk. Right, like the more mo- the more money you put into a movie, the less you can afford that movie underperforming your expectations because you've 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 really focused and 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 undiversified yourself, right? Like, and so on one hand, it feels like because you invest a lot of money into this movie that it's it's got a better chance of outperforming your expectations and is thus a good investment, but also it is a single point of failure and thus it becomes riskier. You know, it can become a worse. Inv- can go one way or the other. So, I mean, this is I, – I, I have a lot of things I want to say about this. But, like, one of them is that – and here we are talking about movies in the, in the non-summer movie oh, podcast. Hey. But one, but one of this, bye, bye, bye. Uh, one, one, one of the things is I, I Belinky and I used to get into this a lot, where it was like, oh, you know, that movie didn't make its it, the domestic gross wasn't the production budget. Uh, you know, ten years in college or uh, ten years ago in college or after college. Um, Right, like uh, we would, I, w- I would say. Well, no, look, they, they make their money on the DVD sales, right? There, there are these ancillary streams of revenue. Well, now DVD sales are gone, and it's really the foreign box office, right? And and so right. I, I look at Pacific. It's called Pacific Rim for a reason. Well, right, exactly, right, and it takes place in the places that it takes place for a reason, right? Uh, right. It takes place in in markets that are becoming important right. uh, markets for Hollywood exporting its movies. Yeah. So, right, I mean, so, Iron Man even had an additional sequence that took place in China that they inserted into the movie only for the Chinese market, right? Yeah, with cameos from uh, famous Chinese actors, I mean, who are famous domestically in China, right? So, like, okay, look at look at Pacific Rim, uh, budget of, you know, ballpark figure 200 million, only brought in ballpark figure 100 domestically, but brought in another 200 uh, in the foreign market. Now, by the way, that probably didn't break even because the domestic, uh, because the production Production budget doesn't count PNA, it doesn't count prints and advertising, which actually it's no, not prints anymore. Everything is digital. Uh, it's just advertising and launching a movie like this can cost uh, in the nine figures just just for the TV commercials and marketing and bus shelter wraps and you know uh all that crap that that goes on with that so uh but but the idea uh, you know the idea is that like they they mitigate their risk by pre-selling uh foreign distribution um and uh, i don't know if pacific rim did this but it, it, you know very often you're in a situation where where a movie uh, between between that between whatever merchandising uh, deals right like uh, you you have a situation with a movie like um, uh, Star Wars Episode Three uh, when that movie came out right like it if no one had gone to see that movie it still would have made money because of the deals that were in place uh, you know already with merchandising and with foreign sales and and stuff like that right like that that movie was bought and paid for yep. uh, before ticket one was sold yeah if we really want to talk about the flop of summer 2013 uh, all signs right now indicate to the lone ranger right, right. 215 and, million dollar budget uh, domestic gross right. of only 86 and that's worldwide another- of only 175 so even like you know yeah. in toto it hasn't made his production budget back like, yet. No, no, you mean you mean actually because you mean in tonto oh god <sighs> Fred um, probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> Here's the thing. Like, I probably believe this because, like, I want to believe it because, like, isn't it pretty to think so? But, like, I would argue that The Lone Ranger is another movie that, like, 
if it had been great, if it had been like a fun movie to watch, um, people would have gotten to see it. But even since like the very first photos appeared of Johnny Depp with the bird on his head, um, nobody was really that psyched for the Lone Ranger. And so that it, it, it seemed to me that people, I, I like to think that like, you know, your best marketing strategy for, for making business in the, making money in the movie business is to make good movies. Yeah, just um, something to say about uh, about this trend. We should probably move off of this since this is not a non movie podcast. Uh, we talked a lot about overthinking it, about, overthinking it about how people really like to narrativize things, in particular sports. I think John Parrott wrote an article about that. Um, yep. But uh, it, what we see with the summer blockbusters is that the, the pundits are trying to narrativize the trends they see at the box office. Right? People are getting tired of um, of the of the big action packed uh, special effects tentpole movie in the case of the lone ranger people weren't saying people are tired of westerns because there are barely any westerns out there people are saying that people are tired of johnny depp playing the oddball uh, character right and that was sort of the, the narrativation narrativization that was applied to this movie um, but that's just sort of something that uh, the people tell themselves to make them uh, to, to sound smart or to uh, you know, explain things that are in some ways are unexplainable, right? I mean, sure, you know, the fact that it was not a good movie is is partly is a probably a good explanation for why this movie didn't do well. But there are many other unknowns, which uh, probably went into that as well. Yeah, th- that was one of the reasons why I brought up like cost, because when you're say where you're picking like a mutual fund, right? And again, I'm not a financial advisor; I can't really talk to you about this stuff because of regulatory reasons. But I will say, just sort of as an educational example, you know, you can't control what the performance of your mutual fund is going to be. And the mutual fund can tell you how much it made in past years, but that doesn't really give you any information about how it's going to do in the future. The overthinking which you can't podcast, control. past performance is no guarantee of future results. <laughs> exactly. But it can, you can control how much it costs. Right. And so like if you're seeing these movies as sort of cynical investments, if it's like, yeah, screw it, we'll make a terrible Lone Ranger movie and it'll it'll make it'll make money. It'll be great. You know, if, if, if that's the level on which you're making this decision, then like the smartest thing that perhaps you can do is not spend two hundred million dollars on it. Right? Like maybe scale it back if you're going to do stuff that's going to be mediocre and interchangeable. But I guess you're so it much good. money on a Western. That's the thing. It's like, you know, I feel like there's like a ceiling for how much money you could possibly spend on a movie set in the old West. Well, well, yeah, unless you have lots of train chases and explosions, in which case, you know, the, the, the ceiling is virtually unlimited. And I believe there were lots of train chases and explosions in, in this one. But, uh, but Fenzel, you, you sort of uh, swipe the point I was, I was trying to make, and, and hopefully I could have brought it up without running into to regulatory issues. Namely, that <laughs> the way you guys describe, you know, movie financing, and if you're a little bit familiar with movie financing, as I think we've all become, it, it seems more and more like this. They're... They they seem comparable to just like real, really wildly speculative hedge funds. That it being like we're going to sink millions of dollars in this hedge fund. It might pay off you know ten x twenty x for all the investors, or it might cost us all lots of money. We're really not sure. Uh, all we can really bank on is the performance of certain hedge fund managers. You know, guys with names like George Clooney and. Uh, Bradley Cooper and uh, Jennifer Lawrence, and you know, based on their past successes, we were really banking on the f- the hedge fund that these people put together being a success as well. But it's still largely a roll of the dice. And if you read a lot of you know financial press, there's you know you don't have to dig too far to find someone who's saying, well, hedge funds really are a waste of money. That the the best investment return for your buck is going to be in you know very broadly generalized index funds held over a long period of time and that hedge funds are really for uh, people who want to lose money, people who know enough about the market that they're essentially breaking the law anyway, or Warren Buffett and he doesn't count. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess the argument is, and this is partly a rhetorical question, although I, I'm willing for you guys to, to throw at it and prove me wrong, why would anyone invest in movies when other investment vehicles exist? <laughs> well, I day trade movies, by which I mean I buy a ticket to one movie and go into another one inside the theater. <laughs> and then if I don't like that, I I hop off real quick and you know trade up to a different the- trade up to a different theater. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's you know it's funny in the in the I don't read the financial press, but I do read the Hollywood press, and uh, there's always this sort of cynical uh, smirking in the Hollywood press whenever a new wave of investment comes into Hollywood, right? Like whenever, uh, 
whenever Hollywood finds another like cadre of rich idiots whose money who want the glamour, you know, the kind of the the movie star glamour or whatever, who want to be invited to the um, uh, who want to be invited to the red carpet premieres and stuff, um, and they can you know take their money. And this is something that's happened uh, over and over and over and over again, so many times. Um, and it's funny that it's not not uh, a bigger story, but less funny when you think that the same people that make the movies also own all the you know television news divisions, uh, and you know a lot of the newspapers and uh, and the stuff like that. Funny story in today's uh, New York Times in the the Sunday Magazine. There's a joke about there's a joke article uh, that turns into a serious article about what what Jaws would be like today. Right. And it's like, you know, Jaws starring Denise Richards as the world's foremost shark expert in her clinical lab bikini, you know. And uh, uh, so there's this. So, like, what it would be like if it were made in like 1995, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess it wouldn't be De- Denise Richards. It would be. It would be. Uh, I, I, honestly, I don't even know who it would be. Um, I have too much respect for Jennifer Lawrence to say that it would be Jennifer Lawrence. But, but you know, you get my point. Like, what, what would this? Selena Gomez, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, they want to. Yeah, they really want to to broaden their appeal uh, too in the the foreign markets. Um, the. Uh, you know, the idea that Jaws is the template, this article says, uh, for summer action blockbusters, even though it was the first movie to, to you know, make $100 million and kind of started this frenzy for these, these summer blockbusters, these sort of tentpoles um, – the idea that Jaws is the template for these movies is is profoundly strange because compared with R.A.P.D., you know, Jaws is an art movie. It's like a slow paced art film. Yeah, Jaws is Jaws is uh, like you know just the fact that you never see the shark, right? And that even when you do see the shark, you probably shouldn't have seen the shark because it's it yeah. it looks crappy. But like the the suspense, the atmosphere of fear, the uh, you know the the brooding unease, the long slow drag of those fingernails across that that chalkboard right like these are things that would that would in fact never never fly today so a lot of this much like getting ripd gets hung around the, uh, seeing ripd gets hung around the neck of fenzel uh, a lot of this blockbuster stuff gets hung around the neck of of jaws and and that that may not be actually the best way to that may not be actually the best way to understand it i guess yeah, and also not, not having uh, blockbuster stuff also, also gets hung around the neck of Top Gun, which I've mentioned on the podcast before. Nothing blows up in Top Gun until about maybe like twenty minutes before it's over, right? <laughs> it, Top Gun is about people going to school. It's not about <laughs> war. It's not about it's not yeah. about conflict between nations or robots or aliens. It's about um, well, it's about homoeroticism. It's also yeah. about uh, Top Gun uh, is about shock. the sanctity, yeah. Yeah. sanctity of a man's love for another people. man. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to forget that Top Gun supposedly takes place during a war, and of course, it's the Cold War, so it's not even really a war. But you know, it, <laughs> or forget it's it's easy to forget that it takes place during any state of heightened military conflict, except at the very very beginning and at the very very ending. Otherwise, this could all be you know during you know during a, a state and height of peacetime. Yeah, I like to hang this kind of stuff on the towering inferno. Mm. Have you guys seen? You guys have seen the towering inferno? Oh, I that love movie. the tower. One of yeah. OJ's greatest uh, roles. Uh, OJ OJ Simpson in that movie? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it. He I, seems, I think like, of, he seems like a cat at the end. I think. <laughs> oh man, I just I had Paul Newman climbing an elevator shaft, and Steve McQueen is in it. It's got like a million people in it, and there's fire all over the place. That to me seems much more like a blockbuster than Jaws, where it's like, hey, let's do this crazy crap, like you know, and it's just it's bigger and better and greater. But it came out around Christmas time, so I guess it doesn't really count mm-hmm. um, as as the summer blockbuster, even though they tried to artificially warm it above winter levels by setting the building on fire. But uh, anyway, gosh, O.J. Simpson, I need to say that, see that yeah. again. Uh, rather, to your earlier point, I mean, I, I haven't read the article you've cited, so of course I'm going to comment on it. But I, I think the I think the analogy sort of breaks down in that Jaws being made today, you know, if we want to be strictly analogous, would have to be made by a largely unknown director with a cast of recognized actors, but not huge stars, because that's that's the position Jaws was in at the time. This was Spielberg's, I believe, second film third if you count the tv movie that sort of kicked off his career 
And I think the biggest star in it at the time was Robert Shaw. Hmm. Dreyfus, yeah, Dreyfus was doing okay at the point. At that point, yeah, yeah, doing okay, but like he he wouldn't. You, this this was pre Mister Holland's opus, so you wouldn't expect him to open a picture. <laughs> this was way 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 pre Mister. Yeah. <laughs> not sure after Mister. You're, you're only opus. giving him after Mister Holland's opus as the time when he was a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, geez, that's harsh. That's really harsh. <laughs> well, Shark Week is coming up, right? Isn't Shark Week soon? I think we are. It's upon us. Shark Week is upon us, and no one told. <laughs> Me? Oh, jeez. Is that why? Shark, I guess Sharknado sneaks up on you. It's it's right below the surface <laughs> at three feet of water. You don't know it's there. Oh, man. And your, just legs, I it your was... legs are just dangling, you know? In the... <laughs> like, yeah, like, like mozzarella sticks. Uh, <laughs> so that's why the 300 movie was postponed. They were eaten by sharks. <laughs> All of them. I was surprised no one said anything about abs. No one was like, someone brought a cake, and then everybody had to work out for six months. Yeah, also during the, uh, especially during the A-Rod sequence, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, because of the steroids? Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't know if A-Rod has, like, ridiculous abs. I, I assume not. He just doesn't seem to care that much, but whatever. He just he has them, but he never flexes them. They're always relaxed. So I was like, whatever, man. I'll you know, abs, abs is a, uh, it's a topic that, that Pete, you and I may, may take up on the Overthinking at Health and Fitness podcast that, that, perhaps, we're, perhaps. that we're going to start in the, in the fall. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I, rather than get abs, we should just wear really tight corsets and girdles. Right, Mark? <laughs> Speaking of tight corsets and girdles, <laughs> boom, out of the park. <laughs> Put chalk that one up with an asterisk in the Hall of Fame. Put right there. <laughs> Speaking of tight corsets and, <laughs> tight corsets and girls, I went to a place where both were in abundance this weekend. I am, of course, referring to the New York Renaissance Fair. Yes, Yay! yes, my lords and my ladies. I went back to a more gracious time of nights. And ladies, and royalty, and also elves, and and, and pirates, and various <laughs> other uh, things of fantasy and fiction, and also history. I'll get to that in a moment. But let oh me phrase, God, let people me, let get me, your fandom straight. Come on. Okay, okay. So let, let me let me frame this conversation. Right, we talked a lot on this podcast on the site about New York Comic Con. Right or the Comic Con phenomenon in general, right? A safe place. Comic Con phenomenon, as common, like yes. Uh, a safe place for fans, enthusiasts of pop culture, to come together, wear funny costumes, and just like nerd out together, right? The Renaissance fairs are a similar thing, but also quite different in their own right. So I wanted to talk about the Renaissance fair phenomenon and try to understand like what it is and what, what's going on about it. Right. So a little bit of personal background. Um, I, a couple years ago, I'd been to a, a small, uh, I think it was called a medieval festival in city you know, the, the, in the Fort Tryon, if anyone's familiar with that. Um, and I thought, okay, I know what a Renaissance fair is about. I've been there. Um, but no, the New York Renaissance fair and upstate New York is something very different altogether. Uh, in the New York City one, they just sort of set up a bunch of booths and people have costumes, and, and that's about it. In the New York, uh, in the New York Renaissance, there it's there's like permanent structures, like very old, you know, an old timey medieval village has been built for the express purpose of hosting the Renaissance Fair for about a month and a half. Okay, this is a really big freaking deal. Okay, so uh, you just imagine all the lords and ladies and pirates and people in their corsets and things like that uh, uh, convening on the spot for, for like a month and a half at a time, right? This is huge. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, that explains why I'm a little bit in shock over the whole uh, Renaissance Fair experience. But let me get to some, down to sort of like the, the, the what and the why and why do we care about the Renaissance thing, Renaissance Fair uh, phenomenon. Um, now, if, if uh, someone who wasn't familiar with the Renaissance Fair is just sort of uh, had to guess about what a Renaissance Fair is about, well, he, he would say it's a fair about the Renaissance, by the Renaissance meaning the historical period that was the Renaissance, uh, right? With the, somebody give you some, some dates for, for, that we can apply to the Renaissance. What centuries? Uh, what, the uh, very, 15, very late 1502. 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, 15, Right. That's sort of like the, 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 the time period that people like to latch on. Right. That's how it started and sort of the celebration of a historical era. And I guess you could also say there's sort of a celebration of Anglo-Saxon heritage in some weird way, because, by the way, the Renaissance Fair, from what I understand, is a very American phenomenon. Right. At least uh, in, in, in its current state. Um, so yeah, I imagine if, if they want Renaissance in Europe, they can just go down the street and look at it. 
Yeah, go to I don't think it, I don't think it's fair to describe Elizabethan as Anglo-Saxon. I mean, the Tudors were a Welsh house, right? Like, oh, uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was hit by ye old well, actually. <laughs> okay, so, what what Renaissance fairs have evolved from this, you know, historical celebration is a much more entertainment focused thing, right? So you have. Um, and by entertainment, I mean like just sort of like carnival festival atmosphere. You have ye old, you have ye old uh, uh, dunk the person into the into the cage game, right? And uh, perhaps most interesting and germane to the overthinking podcast, um, Renaissance fairs have expanded out from just historical reenactments and jousting and that sort of thing to a sort of celebration of fantasy cultures. Um, sort of Lord of the Rings, high fantasy elves, uh, and that sort of thing. And also pirates, oddly thrown into the mix there. So that's what Renaissance fairs have become. So I wanted to get uh, a sense for the panel, like what they think about the Renaissance fair phenomenon. Have you been to a Renaissance fair? Um, like in what unique cultural place can you put this weird combination of Elizabethan England and Lord of the Rings and pirates? Go. Well, let me ask you something. I never thought that Renaissance fairs were supposed to be about historical reenactment. It always seemed to me that it was the celebration of this idea of chivalry and this idea of the Middle Ages, but not, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess there's probably two camps, right? There's the people who are actually into recreating, you know, a very realistic view of what life was like in the Middle Ages. And there are the people who really like Game of Thrones and, and want to dress up in, yeah. in old timey outfits. No. And like trade swords. Right, right. My understanding of the Renaissance Fair phenomenon, and to keep in mind, my understanding of the Renaissance Fair, Renaissance Fair phenomenon comes from going to two Ren Fairs and reading about it on Wikipedia. So I'm not by any means the expert on it. Um, but my understanding is that uh, by and large, uh, the, the the phenomenon is all about the Game of Thrones type of celebration as opposed to the historical thing. There might be a very small minority that per, that wants to have Ren Fairs that are much more sort of about the historical authenticity. And also, I think in Europe, to the extent that you have like something that might be called a medieval festival or a Renaissance Fair, it's much more about the historical kind of, uh, they're equivalent of Colonial Williamsburg, right? But here, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that if you, uh, if you are going to a Renaissance Fair, you can wear your elf ears and you'll be okay. I mean, this. I went to Renaissance fairs when I was a kid, and this was not the case, as far as I could tell. Really? Uh, yeah, that it was much more about being princesses and being knights. And I remember, maybe this was just sort of the educational bent of my childhood, but like you know, seeing crafts that were being made, you know, seeing where what the armor was all about and all that stuff. I mean, briefly looking at up on the Wikipedia as well, I would I would add a third camp. If you want to divide Renaissance fairs into two camps, one being fantasy Renaissance and the other being sort of the craft and historical reenactment of the Renaissance, the third camp would be Christmas. Oh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. because apparently, according to Wikipedia, of course, which is, of course, a, the flawless source of information, uh, the founding of the, the rise in popularity of Renaissance fairs in the United States is like a Mad Men era phenomenon that happened in the early 60s. Uh, and you can sort of think about, you know, a sort of gallant, you know, perfectionistic Don Draper kind of character <laughs> wanting to go to like Christmas revels, right? And, and to have a really, really fancy Christmas party in the Renaissance style. Yeah. Apparently, early the magicals, if you will. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, that was happening. And then teachers actually started the renaissance fairs um as sort of educational things where they would split people up into guilds and teach them different sorts of st- studies and stuff like that but but we're not in that kind of culture anymore where we want to kind of like oh like you know maybe it's that america was in somewhat of a renaissance or is in kind of a golden age and wanted to kind of celebrate a golden age of, of days of yore and kind of legitimize itself by association with that right because what is the renaissance about if not forced legitimacy by any means necessary i mean i've been watching the tutors so that's my experience of it right now is that like who's legitimate who's not legitimate all that other nonsense, um, but yeah. But when I was a when I was a Renaissance uh, fair person, when I was a Renaissance fair person when I was like twelve, uh, yeah, it would be like long princess like scarf hats things, you know, those conical hats with the long scarves that flow out from them, and you would go to the dunk tank or you would hit like a frog with a hammer. No, you didn't actually do that. You hit a paddle with a hammer and it would make a frog jump, things like that. So I, th- I, I don't know. We talked about this once in the podcast before and I remember being surprised that the Renaissance fairs had become so fantasy-centric. I mean, it totally makes sense, but that wasn't my sense for it back in the day. Can we try to explain that, right? Is it the recent rise of Lord of the Rings or the recent rise of Lord of the Rings? I mean, like the recent reinterest in Lord of the Rings because of the movies or sort of more broadly, right? We're talking about the high fantasy phenomenon and, and fandom in that, 
right? Like how much of that is a new thing, let's say that, that has risen over the last, say, 20 years or so versus how much of uh, that is just separate from the, the, the Renfair phenomenon changing? Mm. It's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, I mean, we can only conjecture, right, because we don't have any data to use. But, but I mean... It, who is going? I mean, first of all, we, when I went to the Renaissance Fair, it was I was a kid, and I went with my parents, and it was sort of supposed to be educational. And if you wanted to, like, go somewhere to have a good time, you'd go to, like, an amusement park, right? you go to, like, a roller coaster place, or you would go... Now, my sense is, if you're going to the Renaissance Fair and you're wearing cat ears, you're probably at least 15 or 16 years old, right? Because you have yeah. disposable income to go. So that means that maybe it's an issue of a wave of different sorts of people going to these things they didn't used to go. So maybe you could look at do people in their late teenage years and early 20s travel more than they used to, right? Do they have, are these, there are groups of people with more uh, uh, disposable income? This could be kind of a creative mm. class thing, right? Where, where like sorts of jobs that would pay you enough to go travel to a renaissance, I mean, I guess it's not solely expensive, but like it's probably not super cheap. It's probably not a low income group that goes to the renaissance fair, right? Like it's like computer programmers and college students and I mean, they're low income, but you know what I Pete, mean? Pete, let me throw out something that, that, I've noticed because I was thinking about Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con I was going on recently, and Comic-Con is something that's been happening for decades. There was Comic-Con back in the 70s, but it was really a a niche subculture thing, and that the people went to Comic-Con, it wasn't really reported in the popular press. Maybe they, they, they didn't feel so free to speak about. They were really... You know, these people were nerds, and they were social lepers. Um, and And I feel like this is... Recently in, in, in the popular culture, it, it, people who used to be relegated to these niches and, and uh, these sort of underground subcultures, they're now coming into the mainstream. You know, and it's not, it's not just the nerd culture. I think it's something about the fantasy culture as well. But the idea that one of the most popular TV shows could be Game of Thrones, I mean, partially it's the, that the special effects have allowed things of that scope to be portrayed. But it was also like the, the, this real... Um, sword and sorcery type thing was was something that that couldn't be taken seriously and that mainstream America wasn't buying into and now it kind of is so I wonder if the sort of the maybe the the newfound or at least what we're perceiving as the popularity at the Renaissance Fair has to do with the the unsubbing of subcultures so to speak that's possible I wonder if you might maybe flip it around just for the sake of like devil's advocate and look at it the other way rather than something where the comic book um, enthusiasts all of a sudden they come mainstream they're more popular they're more influential um, and their their festival is like a bigger deal, like the Renaissance enthusiasts, the people who make handmade chain mail rather than thinking that those people are necessarily a bigger deal is that is is it the case that there are more of them, or is it the case that there are more people who don't have a high level of enthusiasm for the Renaissance who go to Renaissance fairs than who used to go? Right? Like, is it is it is it more of an idea of the interest in Renaissance fairs and the Renaissance in high fantasy enlarging, and also high fantasy enthusiasts becoming more influential, more powerful, having more money, being larger in number? Or is this a case of people who used to be doing something else who aren't high fantasy enthusiasts going to the Renaissance fair? And then what did they used to go to? Right? Like, um, I mean, I think the, the former narrative we hear all the time, it's, it's, there are a lot of triumphalist Twitterers who love to talk about, like, you know, the geek shall inherit the earth and all that stuff. But, like, I'm just, for the sake of, just for the sake of a new conversation, like, you know, what about the non-geeks who go to Renaissance fairs? Are there a lot of them? You know, like, uh, and, and, and are, are these people who would have been home having kids you know, yeah. 20 years ago, but now they don't get married until they're like 29. And so they have more time to hang around and do stuff yeah. or I don't know. But I, mean, I think it's, I think it's part and parcel of the same phenomenon that more people are going to Renaissance fairs because perhaps the stigma that used to surround them as being this sort of, this sort of thing that these, that these oddballs did at the fringes of society. Yeah, and yeah. I don't, I don't mean to say that that's how I felt, but I'm, I, I, I'm suggesting that perhaps there used to be a bit of a, uh, of an aura around Renaissance fair that it was something that like maybe was a little intimidating to outsiders. And there's this feeling that since fantasy is something that's become more accessible and since nerd, you know, since comic book culture has become more accessible and we're all sort of since comic, I mean, part of it is that comic con is probably as much about mainstream movies as this is about comic books. You can, you can have never picked up a comic book in your life and still walk into comic con. And there's a ton that you're interested in just because you 
watch a, you watch a bunch of popular movies every summer. Yep. And uh, that's the same thing with Renaissance fairs is that you probably you know with, without having gone to another Renaissance fair, there'd be a lot that you're familiar with if you if you've um, you read Game of Thrones or, or watched the TV show. Yep. Or I'm trying to think if there's any other big uh, big Renaissance thing in, in popular culture besides Game of Thrones. But that's the that's uh, the gorilla in the yeah, room. Now. If, if you think about it, bring it up. But let me bring up an important distinction between Comic Con. And a Renaissance Fair. So a Comic-Con, right, it's a celebration of pop culture. You have representatives from movie studios there and, and TV shows to, to hawk their wares, to hawk their, to hawk their pop culture properties to a very receptive audience, right? You don't see anything like that at all in the Renaissance Fair, right? HBO doesn't have a booth there. Um, with Game of Thrones photo ops and a Game on of Thrones that. Only, Get- only a matter of time. Yeah. Only a matter of well, time. Well, yes and no, right? It seems like a really obvious place to go to reach a, a captive audience. But on the other hand, there is this still an ethos, uh, the Renaissance Fair, about um, this sort of odd, for lack of a better word, historical uh, authenticity to it, right? It's like people, the, the vendors there, they're, they're sort of, they're in character, right? You know, the person who's, who's selling the turkey legs. Now, granted, the turkey legs themselves are by no means an authentic medieval food. But they're like, here, come ye, come one, come all, taste a delicious turkey leg. As if they were like, you know, uh, in some sort of medieval market, right? Um, putting on this uh, fake British accent and trying to sell it, right? Um, ye, th- that, to me, doesn't create a lot of room for someone to be like, come ye, come all, to ye old authentic comic book store and DVD uh, 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 you know, outlets. Well, Comic-Con is kind of an interesting case, and it's an interesting comparison to make to sort of take it back to that level of analogy, because while there is a broader pop culture focus on recent Comic-Cons, like... San Diego Comic-Con, New York Comic-Con, and in fact the Boston Comic-Con, which just happened this past weekend, uh, to those of you who are listening to the podcast now. the So while you can go and still pick up a lot of broader pop cultural exposure, and this has partly to do with the, the influence of comic book and sci-fi and fantasy properties in pop culture, it's still not the sort of place that would attract a broader audience in that if you are a... I, I want to, what's the best way to put this? A less devout but still interested fan of like the Avengers or Game of Thrones or Halo or Mass Effect or whatever, and you want to learn something new and exciting about it in the year 2013, the least efficient way to do so would be to buy a, tic- a plane ticket to San Diego and stand in line for four hours to see something at the far end of a conference room. Uh, the only reason you would go to San Diego Comic Con you know, paying that money and taking that experience is to be immersed in that culture, is to be in a culture of people who feel as passionately about something as you do. So I think I, I think that that case that we were perhaps suggesting is no longer no longer holds as much for the comic conventions, still holds more than I, I think we're giving it credit for. Because as far as, you know, information and hype delivery systems, Convention halls full of people are still extremely inefficient compared to, say, other modes of distribution of information and hype that are available in the year 2013. You say that, but just to, 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 to piggyback on this idea of the, the hype machine, right, the efficient means of conveying hype, right, the convention floor is sort of a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself, right, because, you know, putting all those panels and in being on the convention floor, that generates stuff for blogs to report about, right? Like that is that's the efficient way of getting the, getting the word out is, um, uh, you know, a million blog posts about Loki showing up at the Comic Con at the Avengers panel. I, I love I love this this theory of media in which you know giant media corporations exist to make life easier for blogs. Uh, I don't <laughs> think I don't think the economics bear that out though. I think if anything, it's the other way around. What do you mean by the other way around? I, I think I think blogs exist to make, you know, I think pop culture blogs, not counting ours, of course, independent and full of integrity as we are. You know, it's the <laughs> other guys I'm talking about, clearly. Uh, I think pop culture blogs exist to make life easier for, for, you know, giant multinational media corporations. And the ones that don't are the ones you haven't heard of. Like, the, you know, the ones that succeed to any real extent like do it. so because they provide content and report on things that you know media giant media corporations want to have reported on and so they have a certain level of cachet and access like you know the major i'm I'm not going to name names because i don't want to want this to turn into like a sort of you know 
he said, she said fight. But, you know, the lar- you have the larger entertainment blogs who get early access to, you know, certain kinds of footage. You know, they get certain, they, you know, they get interviews. They get, you know, special, special sneak peeks on things. Uh, and the reason they do that is because media corporations realize that these blogs have, you know, have a certain readership that they want to message. So in a, it, I, I don't want to, I don't want to phrase it in the, when I say that, you know, these blogs exist because they're useful to media corporations, I don't want that to be, I don't want that to be interpreted as a strict one-to-one intentionality. Like it's not a conspiracy theory that I'm evoking here, but you know, if it were a conspiracy, it wouldn't function any differently. <laughs> so let, let, let me get back to uh, you know, what my original point around. Mark, can I, uh, sorry, com- before do, before you do that, can I just Please. can I just um, tease our our upcoming post on uh, overthinking it on Monday? It's at uh, twenty five surprising reasons that Sony Pictures Entertainment is awesome. <laughs> I, I, I am surprised at reasons 15 through 19 especially so you won't want to miss it reason 13 was discovered by a dad and pharmaceutical companies don't want you to hear about it <laughs> one, one, one weird old reason that, that news corporation is yeah. just the, the, the boobs uh, go ahead Mark okay so differences between Comic Con and, and, uh, and Renaissance Fair right uh, we talked about the, the corporate end of things uh, but that that was uh, born out of this idea I had earlier about Comic Con. I'm not sorry, Renaissance Fair being much more experiential about sort of like creating this uh, immersive environment in, in which you sort of you show up and uh, it's not about like I'm wearing my um, my Captain America costume and I'm showing up at the convention hall uh, to you know look through comic books and sort of things. It's like I'm showing up to the Ren Fair in my uh, knight outfit and I'm sort of like taking on this role as a knight and I can interact with my other. And, and and lords and ladies and that sort of thing. It's it's this like you know role playing idea, right? It's very experiential and that's not what's going on at Comic Con. But the thought occurred to me is that like, well, why doesn't that occur at Comic Con? Is uh, there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't. But let's let me ask a different type of question. Is there uh, can can we all imagine a type of similar Ren Fair experience in which you show up and you sort of like inhabit this role and you enter this fictional universe and you get to sort of interact with people in that same kind of way yeah like an insurance convention right like <laughs> where it's just oh, like hi uh, hello i'm an associate vice president of liberty mutual and I, this, is, <laughs> this is my imaginary life that i'm going to talk about <laughs> let, me, let me give because, another example because like in Star fact Trek. i am dead inside yeah, i am exactly. broken it's down <laughs> hollowed out okay okay here's another example like a, a what hell Ye <laughs> term life insurance. Lords and ladies, you will be old lords and old ladies soon, and your bequests may be lacking. So sign up for Ye Elde Mutual of Liberties uh, Term Life, L-Y-F-E-E, insurance. Sorry, wow. Mark. Go ahead. That wasn't our expected. <laughs> was not where I expected the conversation to go. Okay, so let's another type of uh, pop culture convention, uh, Star Trek conventions. Right now, I've, I've never actually been to one. From what I understand, it's oh, kind of similar to Comic Con, right? So, I, I, from what I understand, you show up in your Starfleet uniform, but it's not like the same experiential kind of thing where like everybody pretends they're on a starship, right? Or is it, Matt? No, 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 no. It's not that. For that, you have to go to the Las Vegas Hilton and the uh, Star Trek experience. No, I think that's shut down. Yeah, but that's I what I'm shut down like that's, twenty that's, years ago. That's what I'm getting at, right? It's like, shouldn't there be some sort of like enormous Star Trek experience convention hall where you show up and you pretend to be on a starship? You go to the uh, to the bar and order, or you like you slip the bartender some extra credits to get some um, contraband Romulan ale, uh, gold pressed latinum, Mark. Okay, yeah, that. <laughs> uh, shouldn't there be that? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I actually don't want to get near the normative claim about whether any of these things should or shouldn't, uh, should or shouldn't be. But uh, but the the positive claim that that would be a very interesting thing to do. Yes, I I agree. It would be interesting if that did if that did exist. But no, I mean it was all you know it was all card tables with with memorabilia, right? Like uh, and then a uh, an awesome keynote presentation from Marina Sirtis uh, about um, about why Counselor Troy didn't wear the standard Starfleet uniform for uh, you know the first years of the series. 
That sounds like a fantastic keynote presentation. <laughs> <laughs> then I waited in a long, in an hours long line to get her to autograph a picture. I was 14. It was exciting. So by the lack of response to this, it sounds like people are, either don't have uh, interesting ideas for a similar uh, immersive pop culture experience yeah. or uh, you just are already there in your minds. Well, I think I think you're much more likely to get there with Star Wars than Star Trek. And I don't know, maybe Disney will make it happen now that they own Star Wars and they're clearly planning to it's only a matter of time before they, they have a Star Wars theme area somewhere in Orlando. Uh, that that maybe there'll be there'll be certain days of the year when like you, when you walk into the area you need to be in costume and in character. Uh, I could see that happening because they already I mean they they have big Star Wars conventions and people clearly do wander around in character. It's it's called celebration, right? This happens in Florida, right, right. And and I got to imagine that that although it's probably not universal, it's not like you're not allowed to be there if you're not role playing. There is a, a great deal of of people who are walking around in stormtrooper outfits, kind of pretending to be stormtroopers to the to the extent that they can. I mean, I, I guess I think that it, it's uh, it's important. Important thing about the Renaissance Fair is romance is an essential element of Renaissance fairs, right? Why are you going to role play at a place where you, there can be no romance, right? And so that's why I think there should be conference actually, where everybody goes to a convention hall and dresses up as their favorite character from Love Actually, and then they can all talk with each other. About <laughs> it's like hello my my wife just died my wife just died too my wife also just died here's my son here's my son here's my son here's my son <laughs> this is a long park bench we all have to sit on <laughs> uh, well i so, think yeah. i think this has been podcast actually <laughs> so uh, we'll leave it there for this week And you can uh, join the conversation if you like By emailing podcast at overthinkingit.com By calling 203-285-6401 Call or text uh, Send an SMS message To 203-285-6401 Or uh, leave The uh, comment in the, the Discussion that always happens on The show notes, the post uh, With the show notes uh, If you like this show, you could do us a great favor By rating us on iTunes and leaving a review there if you're feeling verbose if you don't like this show please keep your mouth shut and uh you know we'll be back next week with more podcast i just wanted to let that one hang yeah i wanted to let that one hang and see what would happen if uh turns out turns out nothing Look, um, as the 300 people learned, you can't just do sit-ups nonstop for five years. You have to take breaks or else you're going to strain your obliques. Jeez Louise, people. All right. You know what also causes oblique strains is taking lots of steroids. Right, Alex Rodriguez? Hamstring and obliques, man. Those are, those are, those are red flags. Red flags. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back with our homemade uh, sound effects next week. Till then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to ye the level of certainty <laughs> it is probably doesn't not verily <laughs> indeed <laughs>What a pleasure to hear you. Wow, that of course it's really creating some massive cleavage on you, Harvey.